What's up, y'all? It's Drewski, and I've teamed up with Mountain Dew to produce a hilarious new basketball podcast called The Dew Zone with Drewski. Learn the backstories of your favorite ballers and celebrities like Jamal Murray. Did you have, like, a favorite team? Was it the Raptors at the time or no? Was the Raptors even started around that time? Come on, bro. I ain't that old, fam. <laughs> You're talking like I'm 50. Taylor Rooks, Asia Wilson, and many more. You won't want to miss this. Listen to The Do Zone with Drewski on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome to Burn It All Down, the feminist sports podcast you need. I'm Jessica Luther, freelance journalist and author in Austin, Texas. And on today's show, I'm joined by Brenda Elsie, an associate professor of history at Hofstra on Long Island, Shreen Ahmed, a writer, public speaker, and sports activist in Toronto, and Lindsay Gibbs, the creator of Power Plays, a no-bullshit newsletter about sexism and sports that arise right in your inbox three days a week. Go sign up. First things first, as always, thank you to our patrons who supported this podcast through our ongoing Patreon campaign, Make Burn It All Down Possible. We are so, so thankful for you. If you'd like to become a patron, it's easy. Go to patreon.com slash burn it all down. For as little as $2 per month, you can access exclusives like extra Patreon-only segments or our monthly behind-the-scenes vlog. On today's show, we're going to talk about Olympic qualifying and women's basketball and soccer. And then I chat with three-time Olympian and flamethrower Alana Myers-Taylor about her journey from professional softballer to bobsledding champion to a couple caps on the USA rugby team, and also her pregnancy and being a world-class pregnant athlete. Finally, we're going to talk once more, and again, about the shit show that is the USA Gymnastics, Michigan State, and the U.S. Olympic and Paralympic Committee. It's an olympic theme episode, y'all, here in February. And of course, we'll cap off today's show by burning things that deserve to be burned, doing shoutouts to women who deserve shoutouts, and telling you what is good in our worlds. But first, before we get into all of that, Shireen sent us a link earlier this week about some sweet, sweet dogs. And it has been, I don't know, a difficult run recently. I don't know how y'all are feeling, but I just really like looking at the faces of sweet, sweet dogs. So I thought we could talk a little bit about animals, maybe animals in sports, just animals in general. Before we get started this week, Shireen, tell me about these dogs. Oh, they're so sweet. So the Washington Capitals had actually adopted a service dog and his name is Captain. And I just, it was like adorable. Like the service dog will be trained to help vets. And I like, I just think that's really important considering the shit show way the military industrial complex treats vets. And anyway, so Cap. And he takes beautiful photos with the the Washington Capitals, the Mystics, like it's just in the Wizards. And then he got a new sibling. They adopted a puppy named Scout. Okay, Scout is everything you want this little dog to be. He's adorable. He's playful. He's just so cute. And I was like, whoa. And we all know I am a cat person, but like, I love dogs and I have such a soft spot for service dogs. I think they're like incredibly selfless, wonderful animals and just exactly what dogs are. So I just was sharing these photos and I was shocked that you didn't see this, Jess, because I was like, this is happy dog news. I was <laughs> like, you're always on the ball. And like, like even Lynn's like, you know, with, you know, being with Mo it, and everything. I was like, isn't the, these dogs are going to be shared between Washington DC teams, correct? Yeah. Their home is actually the facility. So they're taking care of and they like they recognize all the athletes and they hang out. And I didn't realize the mystics were involved and I love everything. So the I mystics just, are involved. 
So we need a yeah. uh, like firsthand report from Lens is what we're yeah. saying here. Yeah, Lynn, we need, we need <laughs> an upload. I'm going to be need back that on selfie the feed. With you and these puppy, with this dog and puppy. It's a tough assignment. I believe in you. <laughs> I believe in you. That, so, yeah. Brendan, can I make a recommendation? Yeah, you can. Okay. Well, you know, I'm not the biggest animal lover on this podcast, <laughs> which isn't saying much because you guys are huge animal lovers. It's true. I do like them and sometimes love them. Brenda and loves there animals. Is that's I do, and I- <laughs> Brenda's not as heartless as she seems. <laughs> no, but she doesn't, she doesn't eat animals, so that's a thing. I don't eat animals, which yeah. I think gives Good me point. a pass forever. It does forever. But in any case, look at this. Um, there is a Twitter account, and I know Shireen's on it too, called Footballers with Animals. Oh, oh I love it. Accounts like that. No, it's it. amazing. Yeah. And so, like yesterday was Thomas Miller with a group of chickens. <laughs> And I almost died. And there's a lot of women. There are kangaroos invading the pitch. There are, you know, Sam Kerr with her dog in the pool. There's so much good content there. And of course, there are many, many pictures of Messi holding a goat. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's it's football it. with uh, footballers with animals is actually they were really good. They contacted me before the Women's World Cup and were really making an effort to make sure they had women. <laughs> On yes. there a lot. And I found out about cocas through footballers with animals. I didn't know what a coca is. Friends, you need to go Google a coca. It is it's an animal that's native to Australia but has no natural predators. So is literally labeled the happiest animal on the planet. It is adorable. <laughs> it is the happiest thing I've ever seen. Like you just I love it. It's it's wonderful. Life goals. I know. It's Aww. so fabulous. Yeah. Well, I definitely feel happier now and i'm just really looking forward to Lindsay doing getting pictures with these dogs okay well yay animals I, I really feel like they make this hellscape that we're currently living through just a little bit better and i'm very thankful for them but now let's get on to talking about some olympics all right shereen want to get us started started on olympic qualifying Sure. There was lots of busyness this week uh, for soccer and basketball for women's Olympic qualifications. Um, Just to start off, I just wanted to, we'll do soccer first because, you know, we're still coming off the run of co-prime minister Christine Sinclair. So I think it's very apt to to talk about that. I will be very candid and say there's no question in anyone's mind that in these two qualifying rounds, the United States will not qualify. They will. They have. So I think that's that's pretty clear in the CONCACAF regional tournament in soccer. The United States is number one. And the reigning world champs are going to go through to Tokyo, which is like very, very appropriate. They're looking really, really strong. Some of the lineups, there was discussion about the lineups. Like when I don't see Lindsay Horan on the starting 11, I get a little irritated. Anyway, yeah, needless to say, she wasn't there. But when she comes on, she'll score a brace. So I don't get it. I'm still really confused. I mean, we can all talk about Carly Lloyd and how we feel about Carly Lloyd, who was, I think, relentless. And I like that about her. I've decided. I just like that about her. So in terms of soccer, Canada had to play Costa Rica last night and we were all anticipating an easy win. That didn't happen. Know what the fuck Canada, they do. They just have to stress the nation out. They won one nothing. They only needed one goal. But only requiring one goal doesn't mean you should only get one goal. Hello? <laughs> I just don't, I don't, 
know why they, they they choose to function that way. Anyways, it's it is what it is. So this was actually Friday night they played uh, Costa Rica, and I'm trying to remain calm. And in a book talk, and I kept checking the score and like Meg Linehan's feed and you know Yang uh, Stephanie Yang's feed. Anyways, anyways, on to basketball. We can go into depth about this. Same thing. Like the qualifications were playing were being played in Belgium. Um did want to just mention this because I think Jessica added this was that some of the qualifiers were supposed to actually be played in China and those teams affected were Spain and a few others and they were moved to Serbia. And I think this is something we need to recognize because there's a bunch of other like qualifiers, particularly in the AFC again, sorry, I'm jumping back to soccer that needed to be moved from Australia. So for whatever reasons in the world, you know, things have to be shifted quickly. And in women's sports, I will say this, that there's a lot of time where logistics are not as great and women make it work. They make it work wherever they have to. And I just wanted to point that out. Happy to, you know, throw this throw this around. We can also talk about the amazing, you know, team that is the U.S. women's national basketball team. They are phenomenal. And and I'm like, I know we're not doing Olympic predictions yet, but I do see gold for America in, you know, not necessarily in soccer, because I don't know, some weird stuff happens at the Olympics to the United States women's national team. But for gold, yeah, y'all, y'all have it. So just also want to shout out Canadian basketball because I love them. And I think the Canadian women's basketball team is the most underrated team in the nation, particularly in a country that doesn't have a domestic women's league for soccer, hockey or basketball. So, which sucks, but yeah, that's my little intro. I'll just tell a little behind the scenes that when Shireen suggested that we talk about this today, she provided two links to us and they were both about the Canadian women's national team (laughs) and how they were doing in (laughs) soccer and basketball. (laughs) On on brand. (laughs) Very on brand. I just, right before I throw it, I wanted to point out, yeah, the Asia Football Confederation was supposed to play in Wuhan, which is the sort of center of the coronavirus. I mean, it's kind of wild. They actually... Like, I think China pulled out of the competitions. I It's been chaotic. The equalizer has been following along. And then before I throw to Bren, I just want to make sure that I'm clear on this. The Olympic, uh, for women, on, for the Olympics, only 12 soccer teams make it, right? Like, it's a tiny number who are actually qualifying. It's kind of wild to me when you think about that, especially after watching the World Cup this past summer. Brenda. Yeah, I mean, there's a there's an interesting history to that, which is it starts with the men's game. And the reason that you have the Soccer World Cup is because FIFA and the IOC break in the 1920s over amateurism and getting paid. Oh, thanks. And so, yeah, I know. I'm sorry. No, I appreciate it. But that's partly the reason that the World Cup starts in 1930 in Uruguay has to do with these ongoing tensions between FIFA and the IOC as as FIFA like takes its tentacles and starts to control and monopolize the entire game and women end up like they often do in a funky weird byproduct position where they've always been amateurs until like recently the majority of the players and it's just weird how those rules are i just want to like like throw some shade on the qualifiers not for concacaf which makes sense to me but for Conmebol, and I think if I understand the Euro qualifying that as well, for Conmebol, the one team qualifies by doing well in the Copa America, which also qualifies them for the World Cup and also the Pan Am Games at once. And that was two and a half, two years ago. Oh, wow. 
Who <laughs> yeah. was it? Do you, so that's little, do you know? Brazil. Brazil, Brazil, of course. Okay. So that's shit. That is terrible mm. because it's terrible for regional soccer. It means they don't keep playing. They don't have like momentum. They're not getting called up. They're not getting convoked. They're not playing. Yeah. <laughs> so if you want them to play a World Cup in, by the way, who knows where FIFA. Still. Still. If you want them to do well and compete, they have to freaking play. <laughs> <laughs> so it's pretty frustrating. Of course, it probably it would be Brazil anyway. It's not that I'm disputing who's going. And just also one last thing, I think Netherlands actually, I think they have a good chance in this Olympics um, to, to take on the U.S. Okay, interesting. Lindsay? Yeah, I think going, you know, kind of continuing the theme from Brenda is that it's pretty staggering to see that there are these teams that we loved so much during the World Cup, which was just last year, that are now we're seeing convened again. And there's a big question mark about their future. The Jamaican team, which we've talked about tons on the show, we've had members of their show on, they might not even continue to exist. Like they are uh, back to fighting for their lives after not qualifying for the Olympics. And that's a ridiculous standard. Cause like we said, there's only 12 teams that qualify for the Olympics. So, you know, to have like the future of your program, um, hinging on whether or not you qualify for the Olympics when, you know, there are only two CONCACAF spots for the Olympics. Like it's just, it's absurd. And it makes me really, really sad to see. And I mean, ultimately, you know, every time I see a CONCACAF tournament for the women, it just reminds you again, like there are every single, almost uh, every single game in the group stages was a blowout, you know, and it's very clear, you know, the haves and the have nots, you know, the, the places that invest in soccer in any meaningful way and the places that don't. And it's, that shouldn't be what determined <laughs> everything, yeah. right? Like that just, you know, it should be about talent and oh, strategy and in a dream world, but that's that's very clearly not the reality. So it was exciting. Look, I'm I love the US team. That's no question. I do think like they're trying to be the first team to ever, first women's team to ever win the Olympics right after the women's World Cup. It's never been done before. And I think that's really keeping them motivated and would be a great thing like for their their legacy. They certainly remember the last Olympics and what happened against Sweden and getting out in the quarters. So as excited as I am to, to watch them and to see their success and to see, you know, Canada uh, success, it's certainly tampered for me by seeing the, the general state of the yeah, game. Those are really good points. Shireen. Yeah, I just wanted to clarify about one thing because I was hearing rumors about the Ragged Girls and I am doing a profile on Tiffany Cameron, who's a Canadian national, but who plays for the Jamaican team and was doing some digging and that about the Ragged Girls. And I just wanted to let everyone know is it's right now a rumor. This was also confirmed by Stephanie Yang. So there's no like solid proof that they're not coming back as a program. So I just wanted to let everybody know that just to sort of like debunk that because it's not necessarily true. They're struggling as a team as a lot of women do to get what they do, but there's no sign that they will 
not be going forward because they did not qualify for the Olympics. But in general, though, they are. I mean, there's still a drastic like their quote their coach who was amazing. Oh, did just he? Just quit because he's he had been yeah. fighting yeah. for his pay. Yeah. Like they're you know they're yeah, he wasn't being payroll. paid at all last summer. He wasn't being paid at all. But I just wanted yeah. to say that there's there's a lot of turbulence. But I don't want to mislead people to think that the program is ending. It's not. So yeah, Busby is not. He's, he he did resign, so that's totally problematic. But if we look at, yeah, it's really, really rough, but it's not confirmed that the team isn't. I just wanted to just make that clear because, like, it's really frustrating for the players to hear those rumors and have to fight against that because, to to my knowledge and from what I've done, they, that's not true. So, I mean, I think it's it's important as we look forward, and I agree with you, the disparity between the, 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 the scores of St. Kitts and Jamaica, like Canada blew at Jamaica 9 nothing. And that's a that's a tough tough match. And I mean, like it's if you see that the scores are so uneven, and Concacaf has a lot of work to do. And I know Brenda has a, can probably add a bunch on this, but I did wanted to sort of add just what we were talking yeah, just what you were talking about about the twelve coveted spots at the Olympics. That also means that Denmark, who were finalists in the Euros, won't get to go and. They didn't qualify. We didn't see them at the Women's World Cup. And it, it, it's also, it's very frustrating in that way because I love Denmark. And they were they were runners up at the Women's Euros. Like they're the, literally the second best team in Europe, according to the standard, the, the standings, but they won't be there. And it's not just because I totally love Nadia and Adim and my set. I guess it's basically because of that. But I think like the way that, and Brenda can also shed more light on the ways in which this is so messed up how the teams go. I mean, my only chance to see Denmark is to go to the Euros next year, the women's Euros in 2021, which I plan on doing. But it's, it's, I don't know. It's, it's a thing. Yeah. So I, I mean, I think the point is that we're not necessarily going to see the 12 best teams play this summer. Cause we just right. don't know based on how yeah. they <laughs> qualified. Lindsay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think another thing to keep in mind is how much more, important. I'm not saying qualifying for the Olympics isn't important for the men. Of course it is. But these federations are not investing in women's soccer because they should or because it's the you know the right thing to do. They need these qualifications. Like I feel like what's on the line for these women's teams as far as fighting for respect from their federations and fighting for funding is so much more. And that makes it even more devastating to me that there's only, there's only 12 spots because decisions about the future of the game are being made. Yeah. They will use it against women as they like to do. Right. Yeah. Brenda. Hmm. I mean, that's interesting. I mean, the women started playing the soccer, playing the soccer in 1996. So it isn't that old of a, of a tournament either and i'm just thinking out loud as to like what would happen if those if that pool was expanded and if there's pressure from fifa anyway not to expand it i wouldn't be surprised if they sort of felt dominion as they always do over a game that they don't really develop or support just really quickly i would just like to mourn that we will not see i was happy about um the netherlands and i mentioned that but we will not see Ada Hergerberg, because she has suffered a rupture in her right knee of her ACL. And I am so bummed. Um, I thought she might come back. Of course, she who has done the most to push for equal conditions between the men and women's teams um, for the Netherlands. We also won't see France. That is a bummer as well. So, you know, I hate to like dwell on who we won't see because it's going to be fun and it's going to be great. 
But I would just like to acknowledge that my favorite player (laughs) won't be in there. And it looks like she has a very long road to recovery. So I hope that um, Shireen gets to see her in the Euros. Nice. Just to wrap up, I wanted to go nationalistic a little bit and talk about the U.S. women's basketball team. Um, And I just wanted to say that I'm really excited to see both Brianna Stewart and Skylar Diggins-Smith back on the court playing great basketball. And then I also just... Mm -hmm. This week, one of the things that made me happy, maybe I should save this to the end, there is this amazing picture of Sue Bird and Diana Taurasi in the uniforms that the U.S. will wear in the Olympics. And I just have looked at that picture so much this week. It is just so great. Diana's looking off to the side. Sue's got her arm around her and is looking straight at the camera. And they just look fucking amazing. And I'm on some level, I'll be so sad when they leave. Uh, the game, but to think that we're going to see all these women play this summer is very exciting. Up next, I talk to Olympian Alana Myers-Taylor. I'm so happy to be joined today by Olympian Alana Myers-Taylor. Alana has competed in three Olympics, winning one bronze and two silver medals in the bobsled. She is a four-time world champion and a 2015 World Cup champion in bobsledding. That same year, she made history when she became the first woman to earn a spot on the U.S. national team competing with the men as a four-man bobsled pilot. She went on to become the first woman to win a medal in international competition in a men's event. She's also the former president of the Women's Sports Foundation. What I didn't know until I was prepping for this interview is that Alana played softball in college and was a professional softball player before becoming a bobsledder. She also has two caps with the U.S. Rugby Sevens team. I'm definitely going to ask her about this. She's currently taking a break from bobsledding because she is pregnant with her first child due weeks from now. She is married to a fellow U.S. national team bobsledder, Nick Taylor. Welcome to Burn It All Down, Alana. Thanks for having me. I love the show. Oh, that means so much to us. I want to start with your sporting career. It's amazing. How did you get into softball? Thanks. So I always was an active kid growing up. My dad actually played in the NFL. So he was very cautious oh. about getting us into organized sport very early. Uh, but I always was outside playing and, and things like that with the boys, kickball, tackle football, you name it, I played it. But I wanted to play something more organized when I got in school. And mm. it took me about probably a year of begging him to let me play softball in order for it to happen. And actually how it came up is I was actually playing baseball outside with the boys. Okay, okay. And I actually wanted to play baseball, but they told me when I went to school, they were handing out baseball flyers to all the boys and I didn't get one. And I was like, well, I want to play baseball. And they said, no, girls play softball. And for some reason, my eight-year-old brain just took that as face value. Yeah, And they handed me a softball flyer. So I was like, okay, this is what I'll do. And then after a year of begging my dad, he finally let me sign up. Why was he so opposed? I think what we're seeing, especially nowadays, is more and more professionalization of youth sports. Uh. And it's just gotten really crazy out of hand. So he really wanted me to um, have a chance to play sport because I enjoyed it and not get too crazy about it. Little did he know, <laughs> it wouldn't take me long, or maybe he did know, it wouldn't take me long before I got crazy about it. And so then how does one transition from softball to bobsled, of all things? And how did you go about that transition? Like, how do you get into bobsled from scratch as an adult? Well, that's the thing. Is like, And we still recruit to this day. So if you want to try out for bobsled, please feel free to contact me. <laughs> 
we recruit from all across the country, regardless of people's sporting background. Um, we just look for speed and power. And what mm-hmm. happens is basically for me, I grew up playing all different sports, didn't specialize until college. And then I was trying to make the Olympic softball team and 2008 was the last games for that. Played oh. a year professionally and didn't make, wasn't really having the success I wanted with softball. So decided to switch over to bobsled after my mom actually saw bobsled on TV Saw it and was like, look, they're looking for fast and strong and powerful people. Why don't you try this? And I was like, sure, why not? It's a chance to live an Olympic dream. And I just Googled it, emailed the coach and got invited to a tryout. Wow. And so you go to the tryout and what did they have you do there? It was a pretty massive tryout, uh, my first tryout. I went up to Lake Placid and (laughs) when I went up there, I didn't even own a winter coat because I'm from Georgia. So I had no idea. Yeah, I'm the same way. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I went up there and we did a combine, which is like a 30 meter sprint, a squat test, a power clean and some other jumping tests and things like that. And then Mm -hmm. based off of those scores, they decide whether or not to invite you back to learn how to push. I scored pretty well. And and all of a sudden they started talking to me about coming back for the season and pushing on ice and all this kind of stuff. And I was like, I have no idea what you're talking about. Sure, I'll be here. And so I came up later when the on-ice season started, and basically it's like a trial by fire. At that time it was. This is 2007, though. They just put you behind a sled on ice and tell you to go, and I had no idea what I was doing. Yeah. That sounds terrifying, honestly. It was. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. And then within bobsled, you actually had a pretty big transition. So your first medal, if I understand correctly, please correct me if I'm wrong, that your first Olympic medal, which is such a cool sentence or phrase, by the way, was for push, you were the pusher. And then you transitioned into being the driver, correct? So you're, okay. Yep. So why did you make that shift? And how do you, how do you learn to drive one of those things? So most people think bobsledding, um, there's not really much driving that goes on. Most people just think you lean and that's how you get down the track. Mm. But drivers actually have a skill. We have a driving mechanism. It's not a steering wheel or anything like that. It's a pulley system mechanism that works in the sled. And we're actually driving the sled down the track. But within the first couple of days of sitting in the back of the sled, when I first started, I knew I wanted to drive. I was like, look, the brakeman in the back sits with their head tucked between their knees. They can't see anything. So after a couple of days, I was like, I can't do this. I need more control. I'm more of a control freak than this. Mm. I need to to be in the front of one of these things and see where I'm going and be able to control my own career. But I knew my best chance of making Vancouver was in the back. So I stayed at Brakeman as long as I could, took that time to really learn and had the great privilege to sit behind some of the best drivers in the world with our U.S. drivers at the time, really learn from them. And then when I transitioned to the front of the driving seat, it was much easier from that standpoint. Have you had the scary looking crashes that we see on the ice? Have you experienced that? Yeah, I'm uh, I'm a little bit of an all or nothing kind of driver in that sense. I tend to take risks that I probably don't need to take. And and probably now later in my career, I won't be taking. But actually, my last race before I got pregnant ended in a crash at World Championships. Ended in a pretty bad concussion. But I'm all recovered from that. But I've I've had a number of crashes, probably more than any other pilot at my level will, just because I I like to find new lines and, and I'm willing to take the risk to see what happens to get there. Can I ask about rugby? How did these two caps for rugby come about? Because this was in <laughs> the middle of your bobsled career. So when did you learn rugby and all of this? <laughs> <laughs> 
Oh, it's, that's the cool thing about bobsled is like during the summers, because there's no ice anywhere in the world, we can train anywhere in the world because you're just doing running mm. and lifting and trying to get fast and strong. So Olympic year 2013, I was actually training down in Chula Vista, California at the Olympic Training Center or what was the Olympic Training Center. And so the rugby team is based out of there. And of course, they were prepping up for um, Rio and, and getting ready to have their first team. And there's a couple of us bobsledders training down there, and the rugby coach kept coming up to us and be like, oh, well, why don't you try rugby? Why don't you try rugby? It's like, I'm kind of busy at the moment. Uh, I'll hit you up after the game. And so actually, right after Sochi, I was very disappointed in my performance at Sochi. I just thought I let myself down. And it's not the color of the medal that matters. It was the performance itself. I had a very tough time there and was really looking for something else. So when the coach had mentioned trying out for rugby, I was like, well, maybe this is an opportunity to do something different. And so I contacted him, asked if he was serious, and he was. And then they brought me down there and taught me rugby in about a month. And next thing you know, I'm in China playing against the Canadian team, which was like the third-ranked team in the in the world at the time. And so I learned a lot very quickly. It was a lot of fun, but uh, definitely, <laughs> definitely wow. something different than bobsled. Wow, that is so cool. And the cool thing, you have 15s rugby's and you have 7s. I was playing 7s rugby, which is more geared towards faster people. But 15s, the coolest thing and why I love it so much is that there is a position for every single body type. Like there is a spot for you on rugby 15s field. And I think like when you see rugby 15 teams, that's what's really cool about it is because you have people from all different shapes and sizes from, you know, girls who are 5 foot and 100 pounds all the way to girls who are six foot and over 200 pounds like there's a place for everybody on a 15 field which is why I think it's so universally loved so now you've taken this bobsled season off because you're pregnant congratulations thank you what has the pregnancy been like for you oh it's uh <laughs> it's been very it hasn't been the easiest pregnancy mm. but at the same time um we were told we would have difficulty getting pregnant to begin with. So mm. it's something you have to keep in perspective. Unfortunately, we were able to get pregnant naturally and are here now, which is amazing. This is awesome. Uh, but, you know, I was pretty sick at the beginning of my pregnancy. And, and I think I had two weeks off where I wasn't really feeling horrible. Aww. But that's okay. You know, it's, it's part of it. And, and it gives you a new respect for your body because I'm growing this human. And all I've known for so long is, you know, your body is an athletic tool just to propel you to the next athletic goal. But to now see my body transform in this way, it's been kind of cool. Yeah. So how does a world-class athlete approach pregnancy? Like I was wondering if were there people you reached out to other athletes that you knew had been pregnant in the middle of their careers? Do you have like, is there some kind of cool like massive private chat that you're all a part of somewhere talking about this? Like, how do you, because I mean, it's one thing to be pregnant and that's a huge physical thing, mental thing, emotional thing for anyone who does it. But then on top of that, like you said, I mean, your career is in your body and so much of what you've done in your life is controlling that body. And how do, how do you, as an athlete, how, how have you approached this? Yeah. So I think, and you'll hear many athletes talk about this at the beginning when you first find out you're pregnant and everything. You just keep training because that's what you know. And the other thing is there's a there's always a fear in the back of your mind that, 
oh, if somebody finds out, you know, I'll lose my health insurance, I'll lose this, I'll lose that. And this is, you know, you've created a career for me. It's 13 years of my primary source of income, my primary finances, everything like that relies on bobsled. So you always have that fear of what's going to happen now that I'm pregnant. Am I going to lose everything? So part of it is you just continue training to put on airs because you're afraid of what the repercussions are. Uh, but after I got past that initial feeling, I just started reaching out to people who I knew I could trust. Like the Lamoureux twins have been great the entire mm. pregnancy and just through Instagram, <laughs> through other things. Yeah. Of course, I'd, I'd met them all before, but you know, it wasn't like some big chat, but now I feel like it is. So I've had conversations with them. Uh, Megan Dugan of hockey, of course, Alicia Montano. She's been absolutely great recommending. I work with the pelvic floor specialist, which has allowed me to continue to train mm. throughout my pregnancy. And, and just getting tips from them about what they've done and everything like that. I even had a chance to connect with Allison Felix shortly before her world championships, which was pretty amazing just to hear from their experiences because there's not really many guides. There are a little bit of guides now online about how to train through pregnancy, but it's not very detailed. So to try and figure all this out, it's like you don't want to do anything that's going to harm your baby. Yeah. But at the same time, you know that your body is, is your money income. So it's like just trying to figure this all out. Right. And that's been a big thing, that discussion around female athletes who get pregnant and their bodies being their income, right? Especially around Nike. Have you had any repercussions that you've had to deal with since you've become pregnant? Uh, fortunately, the USOPC, which I think is, I I'm not sure exactly when it'll be announced, but they've created a maternity policy, um, mm. which wasn't in place when Alicia Montano first got pregnant. And it allows you to stay on your health insurance and it allows you to keep your stipend. So for bobsled, every month we get a stipend. It's not really big at all. Bobsled are by no means balling out of control. Right. Good news <laughs> is we get the same amount of money as the men do. It's just not much money. So, okay. Okay. Um, we're equally paid. Not much. So you get a stipend every month by keeping me on that and being able to stay on my insurance. And that was a USOPC ruling. It really helped me throughout the entire pregnancy, not lose too much of income. Of course, I lose quite a bit in prize money. And even the fact that I'm not able to do as many appearances as speaking engagements, where is, which is where I make a lot of my money, has really hurt the bottom line. But at the same time, um, we planned for this and, and we knew this was potentially what could happen. So we were ready. And I wanted to specifically talk to you about these amazing videos that you have continued to post of yourself during your pregnancy, lifting weights or squatting is what I remember, where you're very clearly visibly pregnant in the videos. So I find them very inspiring. I feel like we've mentioned them before on the show as part of Badass Woman of the Week. Why did you decide to post these? I mean, there's so much scrutiny on pregnant bodies. And, you know, you would put your little disclaimers that your doctor approved it, like, you know, so obviously you were worried that people would say something. So why did you decide to be so public about your continued working out? Oh, people still do stuff. <laughs> <laughs> so they really will for matters. years, I'm uh, sure. <laughs> yeah. I think for me, it's really been interesting to see. I mean, you guys talk about it in your podcast all the time, the over-policing of women's bodies and the over-criticism of women's bodies. And I feel like that somewhat intensifies when you're pregnant. You know, mm -hmm. everybody's the expert on what's going to make your baby healthiest and, and what's the safest. And I think for me, I, what really came down to it is I read, I was studying through a book in a news 
in a um, bookstore one day and it said, well, there's no studies that exercise shortens the labor time, so you don't need to do it while you're pregnant. And I was so infuriated by that message that we're sending women. I was like, I'm going to throw this book across the room because there's a lot of healthy ways and there's a lot of benefits to exercising while you're pregnant. And I just want to be able to show that. And I think the biggest thing is people see me squatting this or that or whatever. All of these are within safe ranges. And I think just people don't necessarily pay attention to what we're doing when I'm not pregnant because it's all within safe ranges. It's all cleared. And I think it's very important to show how strong we are as women and how strong we are as female athletes. And there's no intention in my case to try and shame anyone. Um, I have a couple friends who just, you know, whether it's placenta previa or sciatica or stuff had to stop working out very early in their pregnancies. And, and that's a consideration. And that's definitely something that you have to take into account. Not every woman's pregnancy is the same. Not every woman is going to be able to squat throughout their entire pregnancy, but that's okay. But we need to encourage those who can to continue working out because it has so many positive effects other than you know, not being able to shorten labor time. (laughs) From everything you've said, I'm assuming that you have plans then to return to bobsled and compete and go back to the Olympics. Yep. That's the plan. Um, I've always, I've always had in my head that I wanted to compete at the Olympics with a child. I actually didn't think it would be this late. (laughs) I'm 35 now. So I thought it'd be a little bit sooner, which the amount of shaming that comes with being an older mom and, and, quote unquote geriatric <laughs> maternity age is, is kind of crazy but I'm blessed that we were able to get pregnant and definitely one of the things I look forward to most is having my baby at those Beijing 2022 games and being able to share that experience with them man I cannot wait to see those images that will be beautiful we wish you the best of luck in your pregnancy with your career postpartum. Thank you so much for being on Burn It All Down. We're huge fans of yours. Where can our listeners find you? So I'm on Instagram. It's just Ilana Myers Taylor and Facebook, Twitter, EAM Slider24 on Twitter. So I'm very vocal out there, (laughs) especially now in days where I'm a little less active these days, but feel free to reach out to me, especially if anybody seriously wants to try out for bobsled because we are always looking for new athletes. So if anybody wants to try out man or woman, hit me up. That's amazing. If anyone does, because they heard this podcast, you have to tell us that that has happened. (laughs) We would love to hear that story. Well, thanks so much, Alana. We really appreciate having you on. Thank you. Appreciate it. Last but not least this week, we're going to talk about gymnastics again. I just want to give a general trigger warning about sexual assault because it will inevitably come up in this discussion. We always post timestamps in our show notes, so please feel free to skip ahead if this is not a topic you want to deal with right now. Lindsay, where should we start? Yeah, so as, you know, with the Olympics on the horizon, it'll be here before we know it. I thought it was a good time to kind of revisit where we stand with in the post-NASA world and with how the U.S. Olympic and Paralympic Committee and USA Gymnastics have done in their reforms and look at, you know, is it safe to kind of trust them and root for them again? Unfortunately, no. (laughs) Just spoiler alert, it's not. There's still some really disturbing stuff going on. So on January 30th, USA Gymnastics offered a $215 million settlement to more than 300 plaintiffs who had sued them for failing to protect them from 
former USA Gymnastics and Michigan State doctor Larry Nasser's sexual abuse. So the settlement is all part of like a reorganization plan filed by USA Gymnastics in federal bankruptcy court. And this John Manley, who represents more than 200 Nasser survivors, has said that um, the offer is not just unworkable, but it is unconscionable. Um, so with that, with that offer, each survivor would get about $250,000 to $300,000. And while that might sound like a lot of money, Manley pointed out that many of his clients have been abused hundreds of times, and they will need lifetimes of therapy. And when you add in the earnings losses and just the horrendous emotional toll, you know, that doesn't come come close to to dealing with it. And as Rachel Den Hollander pointed out, noticeably absent from this plan, Rachel Den Hollander, sorry, is was the first NASA survivor to come forward publicly um, and is really the leader of this army of sister survivors, as they call themselves. She said noticeably absent from this plan is any of the specific reforms that we've publicly asked for for years. So what USA Gymnastics is still trying to do is to get out of this in a way that does the least amount of damage to their brand. And it seems to me that their brand is still the number one concern that they have and that there's very, they're just at a certain point, while I understand relying on lawyers and and having going through these legal and financial processes, because you're a business at a certain point, you have to go around that and put the humanity of the, these people first. Uh, you are a nonprofit and safety should be your foremost concern. And when you've failed so tremendously to do that, it's, there's just like, there's no way around it. You've got to put the humanity and the safety of these people first. And I just, you know, there's a lot more we can get to. But I'll throw it to you all first. I mean, I just keep thinking about Simone Biles and the way they've treated Simone Biles and the way they hid, the way they purposefully didn't talk to her or tell her about the Nasser stuff until after the 2016 Olympics because they wanted her to focus. They wanted to get, you know, she's their cash cow and they wanted her to be fully focused on that. You know, I just keep thinking about the way they were going to make her and of course, many others, you know, go back to the place of the Caroli Ranch where, where she was abused. And it was until it wasn't until she spoke up about it that they shut down the Caroli Ranch. You know, just keep thinking about the fact that she is, I mean, they have made so much money off of her. She is the best athlete in the world right now. And she's competing for these organizations, these two organizations, the USA Gymnastics and the US uh, Olympic and Paralympic Committee that enabled her sexual abuse like it is it's mind-boggling to me it's just i can't i can't parse it i can't fathom what it is she's going through and what so many have gone through and it's just you know when the olympics come up it's tough because like of course i want to root for simone biles of course i want to cheer her on but it's so hard because there are still organizations profiting off of her that enabled her abuse Yeah, I've been thinking the same thing around Simone and, you know, thinking about what it means uh, to protest during the Olympics, uh, because she has been vocal, right, about... Very vocal. Yeah, Yeah. in ways that I I just deeply respect so much of what Simone Biles does. And so I wonder, it'll be interesting to see how she handles all of this, however she does it. I um, 
it, it will be the right way. But whether or not she says anything during the Olympics will be interesting to watch because they will absolutely be tweeting their faces off and like putting all this stuff on Facebook and pushing for her in commercials and doing all this stuff that will benefit them. And I think at this point, uh, so Lindsay had a really good wrap, uh, like roundup of all of the news and on power plays on Friday. And I suggest people read that to like get all the details because they're just, I just feel like every once in a while, Lindsay comes to us and is like, we've had another terrible week. Here's 45 links yeah. about all the terrible shit. And it's like, <laughs> I miss like 98% of it. Like it's just constantly ongoing. And I keep thinking what, I don't even understand how USAG and even the USOPC, I don't understand what, how they fix it at this point. Like, I don't understand how anyone will ever trust these organizations around this issue. Like, what would that even look like? Like, what kind of reorg would actually have to happen? Because it feels like, and even this is true in Michigan State, too, um, which is its own story this week. But I don't know. I mean, is it just firing everybody and rehiring? I mean, is it the way that the system itself is set up? Are we talking about like a total reboot? And what does that even look like? I don't, I just feel so impotent in the face of all of this because it's so big and it continues to remain big and it continues to remain very bad. People making very, as Lindsay just said, very bad decisions for brand reasons rather than for people's humanity. Brenda? I love the question of what should you do? Like, what could you even do with these institutions? I think you can just totally disband USA Gymnastics at this point. Like, if I was the IOC, I mean, I'm not, but like, obviously, but if if I was, it seems really simple to me that they should not be representing that sport whatsoever. I really think like the subtly titled podcast that we have should be just bye-bye, like burn it all down. Like it needs to like go. And I can't believe that the IOC wouldn't have intervened at this point when it intervenes to force, you know, women to modify their testosterone levels by 0.0001%. But this <laughs> gigantic shit and the IOC Ooh, is just like, that's a good point. No problem there. Like nothing to see here. So I do think you start completely over. In the in Michigan State, it's a little more complicated because those trustees are elected. So, you know, Ferguson, who I voted for when I was at you know, in a Michigan resident and way back when thought he was a civil rights advocate and thought he what yeah, I mean way back then. <laughs> I mean, that's what happens, right? Way I back know, yeah. oh, I'm talking twenty years ago. He didn't look like he's he what what I know of him now. And that's almost like a little different in terms of administration, right? But yeah, anyway, I just would like to see it all go personally. <laughs> you want to burn it all down? I, I, Is that I, what you're I saying? do. I do. <laughs> I do. Every day and uh. twice on Sunday. <laughs> <laughs> Lind- Lindsay. Yeah, just a super quick thing regarding that, Brenda, is the USOPC finally last year stepped up and tried to and said they were decertifying USA Gymnastics, which was like a long overdue thing. But then USA Gymnastics filed for bankruptcy, which has then stalled the whole decertification process. 
<laughs> and so now, and now they're trying to settle this lawsuit as part of the, the bankruptcy settlement. So basically, they're just buying time. And it, it's really bizarre to see like, how it felt so, like such a big moment when, you know, they, the USOPC finally took steps to decertify them. And then it's just been it's just been a, you know, I mean, obviously, they're still gonna be in power come Tokyo, because at this point, like, you know, you're not gonna get a new organization in. Hmm. Wow. Interesting. That's good to know. Oh. Shireen. Yeah, I just wanted to say that I really appreciate the work, um, particularly and say that you stayed on top of the story. I mean, to this day, the interview we had on the show, Rachel Den Hollander remains one of the most harrowing I've ever heard and your commitment to it. Your latest power plays newsletter is how I prepped for the segment. <laughs> Just sort of catching up because you're constantly and I think we find that and people that report on this, a helicopter in and then just leave. But your reporting has been diligent. And I just wanted to thank you and the others that are on this beat because it's a tough beat and there's a lot to navigate through. So I just wanted to say that I don't have a lot to add beyond that, but I just wanted to put that out there for those of us that are on the, that get it. Um, like the news that way, I just, it's, it's really, it's really important. And thank you. Um, yeah, absolutely. And I just wanted, one thing I wanted to say about all of this is that we intensely focus on USA Gymnastics and rightly so. Um, and we've talked about gymnastics and at Michigan State. I mean, there was even a whole thing this last week around sexual assault and Michigan State football. So much of this, I mean, we've definitely seen reports of abuse in other Olympic sports and other USA national governing bodies, that this is the things that we are talking about all the time around gymnastics, around Michigan State, around even the USOPC, of course, are not just happening there, right? They're happening in all these other places. When the Michigan State football stuff came out this week, it was like, if you thought that this was just gymnastics at Michigan State, well, of course, you're wrong. And if you think it's just Michigan State, then you're wrong about that, too. And I think that's one thing that just whatever I think about the enormity of this problem, I just, man, it gets me down. Lindsay. Yeah, I mean, speaking of that, so also this past week in the there was a former doctor with the US Olympic and Paralympic Committee who filed a whistleblower retaliation lawsuit against the USOPC, alleging that he was fired because he reported sexual abuse complaints. So this is Dr. Bill Morrow, who had also um so he was the vice president of sports medicine at the USOPC. And it had been previously reported, like we had already known this, but that in 2012, after the London Olympics, he recommended that Nasser stop treating his young female patients alone. So he was already sounding alarm bells. He didn't know for sure that Nasser was, uh, I don't think, uh, sexually abusing, but he knew that the conditions and the way Nasser was operating was highly suspect. Once again, 2012, he had sounded alarms. But Morrow also says that, you know, he sounded the alarm about a series of sexual abuse and mental health injustices within the USOPC system in 2018 and 2019. And he says that this is why he was dismissed in May of 2019. The USOPC has, of course, said that they believe in all the cases he's talking about, that they followed proper protocols. <laughs> but obviously, take that with a grain of salt. Michigan State, obviously, still, you know, like Jess said, there's tons of stuff going on. There's a change.org position now requesting that two of the legacy MSU trustees, Joel Ferguson and Brian Masalam, 
not go up for re-election this year and step down. Um, we'll put that link in the show notes as well. But ultimately, this all comes down to power. And I wanted to shout out a book that I read and I did an interview with the authors in Power Plays. So it's called Start by Believing. And it's a by ESPN reporters John Marr and uh, John Barr and Dan Murphy, who did great investigative work on the Nasser case and then put it into a book. And the things that really struck me throughout reading the book was the way that power operated in the system, both on the club level, where they said, quote, well-connected club coaches become power brokers, gatekeepers, who decide which gymnasts get the time and opportunities to continue climbing. And so that's a way that this abuse permeates. And then, you know, within USA Gymnastics itself, Steve Penny, who was the you know, former president of USA Gymnastics, he became a bully. As his power grew, so did his ego, so did his bullying. And he just kept hoarding the power. He developed what was called a God complex. And so I don't know how we fix this, but one thing for sure is to figure out a way to not have the power be so concentrated within these individuals and to somehow make it more a more democratic system because this this power is corrupting. Now it's time for everyone's favorite segment, the burn pile. This is when we pile up all the things we've hated this week in sports and we set them aflame. I'm going to start with Shireen this week because she has her own giant bonfire is what I understand. Shireen. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Okay. So I just was like, I love my co's very much and they're very tolerant. And I was going to burn Hillary Knight being told to go home and die at the rivalry series, which I will. I know everyone's expecting me to say that. Yes, the U.S. won. Yes, you've won most of the matches. Yes, I will say that. I love Hillary Knight. I think three um, out of four, Shireen. Is yeah, that it was, it was three it was? out of four. I consider Hillary Knight an honorary. <laughs> I consider mean. Hillary Knight an honorary Canadian because she played for like Canadian and she still lives here, people. Uh, anyways, that, that's fine. But she she was, it's really, they played the third game in Vancouver and people were shouting at her to go home and die. So she shushed the audience and rightfully so. I don't like that. Um, I also am uncomfortable when U.S. scores on Canada, but that doesn't give anybody like an opportunity to say that. I love Hillary Knight and we'll protect her at all costs. The other thing is I wanted to burn was death threats to Gail King. This week has been a shit show for her um and i mean the way that the interview with lisa leslie went and well well it will be spoken about on this show at some point but i wanted to specifically burn that because death threats to her being a black woman and the way that things unraveled is just i wanted to like send her some love and some really good energy now what i'm really gonna burn in that pre-kindling bonfire i'm really really angry with separate like colonialism generally and how violent it is. But also there's a beautiful basketball tournament that happens on in the West coast of Turtle Island. Um, Turtle Island, for those of you who don't know, is what Canada is called. And it is also an indigenous basketball tournament. But what happened this particular tournament was that there was a media blackout at the tournament. And this makes the athletes themselves very uncomfortable And I just got a quote from the CBC piece that we can add in the show notes. And the organizer said, speaking with CBC producers over the phone, he said, Hogan said, who's the organizer, he said he feared that the games are becoming too political. 
And I stopped and I'm like, what the fuck? It's an indigenous basketball tournament. And some of the, some of the athletes and the former teams have gone on to protest and hold on to your hats. Friends have protested pipelines on indigenous territory because they can, and they should, it is their land. And that's what he means by too political. So essentially a local radio station bought the rights to this, but before it wasn't that nobody could go in because athletes want an opportunity to be showcased. Some of them can look for, you know, semi-pro pro, you know, playing abilities and possibilities and opportunities, but to have a media blackout at a tournament, particularly, it sounds like a whole lot of fucking oppression to me and a continuous sense of suppression of voices. And in this case, indigenous, indigenous basketball players. And in this country, every day there is a fight by indigenous peoples to get basic respect services for land that is theirs. And this just, this literally makes me want to implode but i'm just going to throw this on the burn pile and you know have a continued solidarity with these indigenous athletes and these players and i'm really glad this story is out and we need to amplify it so burn 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 all right i'm gonna go next and uh i just made a little bit fun of shireen for having a lot to say, but I actually have a lot to say um, this week. So bear with me. This week, I learned about James McLean. He's a soccer player from Derry or London Derry in Northern Ireland. He plays for the Republic of Ireland's national team and for Stoke City FC, a professional club in England. And what I learned this week, um, which probably will not be new to plenty of our listeners, is that because McLean is from Northern Ireland, he receives a shit ton of abuse. So the latest and the reason I'm talking about this today is that last week, McLean received a happy anniversary letter about Bloody Sunday, the infamous massacre of 13 unarmed civilians in Derry, McLean's hometown, by British soldiers on January 30th, 1972. Thousands of people were out in the streets. They were protesting for their civil rights. Uh, It did take decades, but an official report from the British government found that there was no threat to the soldiers who fired and no justification for the shooting. David Cameron, when he was prime minister of Britain, said that the Bloody Sunday killings were, quote, unjustified and unjustifiable. So the letter that McLean received listed the date of January 30th, 1972, then said Army 13 IRA, which is the Irish Republican Army, zero. And then the words, bloody good laugh, happy anniversary, enjoy the day. It was signed, yours with hate, from someone claiming to be part of the UDA, which is the Ulster Defense Association, which is a loyalist paramilitary group in Northern Ireland. Okay, so that kind of hate mail all by itself deserves a burn, right? But, you know, because sport's always political, as we like to say here. But then I was reading up on McLean, because I can't, I always have to do the research. I learned that he regularly faces what newspapers in Ireland and the UK call, quote, sectarian abuse. He played for the Northern Ireland's U21 team and then left for the Republic of Ireland's national team because he said, quote, I didn't feel part of the squad. And I think any Catholic player, if they said they did, I'd probably call them a liar. It's probably strong words to say, but I felt that we weren't wanted. As a Catholic as well, it's hard to stand for that national anthem and to see and see all the flags, the sectarian flags and the chants as well. You don't feel part of that, especially me from where I grew up. Except he says it in this really lovely accent. Uh, McLean has also <laughs> <laughs> McLean has also refused to wear the red poppy that commemorates soldiers who have died in the war. He said he does not wear it because, quote, it stands for all the conflicts that Britain has been involved in. Because of the history where I come from in Derry, I cannot wear something that represents that. For these reasons, he receives hate mail, suspicious packages, 
death threats. He faces abuse from spectators while he is on the pitch. An op-ed in a Stoke paper from earlier this year was titled, quote, James McLean is a footballer, not a terrorist, and weekly abuse has to end. Like, that was the op-ed title. The English FA launched its first investigation ever into sectarian abuse because of McLean. And so this is all wrapped up in a long, complicated, and violent history. Things, And the thing is that things are very much on the surface right now because of Brexit being in motion. And it's unclear what's going to happen to the soft border between Northern Ireland and Ireland. By the time you all hear this, we'll know the results. But as of this morning, we only have exit polling to go on. And it suggests that left-leaning political party Sinn Féin, which until 2018 was headed by a reported top member of the West Belfast IRA, and so has longstanding ties to the organization, is surging in the latest Republic of Ireland general election exit polls. And it might be a part of the country's next coalition government. That's a huge deal. But the leaders of other parties have said they're not going to work with Sinn Féin because of their past ties to the IRA. So all of that is up in the air. And and on top of it, there is a background right now of increased violence in Northern Ireland. In April 2019, a journalist, Lyra McKee, was shot and killed while covering a night of unrest in Cregan, the part of Derry where McLean is from like the little neighborhood that he's from. Between September 2018 and September last year, a report found that paramilitary violence in Northern Ireland killed three people and injured 81. The letters and the hate that McLean is getting are rooted in very real circumstances happening on the ground right now in Northern Ireland. So I definitely want to burn the letter that McLean received, but also the continued abuse that he receives, as well as the longstanding violence is the reason for it and the uncertain future in Northern Ireland. Huh. I want to burn all of that this week. So burn. 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 All right. Lindsay, what is on your burn pile? (laughs) Mine's going to be very quick. (laughs) So on last Monday, Oregon played Connecticut in women's basketball in Connecticut. And Oregon beat the Huskies 74 to 56, which is a – they killed them. It was completely – Like they just trounced them. So ESPN actually did great coverage of this game and they had a little segment, a little like documentary outside the lines thing on the game and on the Oregon women. It was short, but it was featured over the weekend, which was cool. After the segment, they had a panel in which three people who don't really follow basketball, women's basketball, (laughs) were then analyzing it. And Will Kane, um, who I think we've mentioned on the show before, (laughs) one of their hot take experts, mentioned that UConn not being dominant anymore was bad for women's basketball. (laughs) (laughs) Of course. And if you guys just, if if your memory can go back like to 20, I don't know, 18, like two full years ago when UConn was winning everything, that was bad for women's basketball. So I would just like to burn people who have an opinion on what is good and what is not good for women's basketball who don't watch or engage with the game in any meaningful way. If you don't like it, if you don't watch it, if you don't care about it, don't fucking comment on it. We don't give a shit what you think. Burn. Burn. Oh, golly. Okay. Linda, what do you want to torch? Um, someone else whose opinion I don't give a shit about. Um, <laughs> uh, I, I would like to torch the idiocy of um, Johnny Infantino. Um, who is a FIFA president and 
I don't even have details on this. Like, it's from Rob Harris. He's a good journalist, and I'm just trusting him right now. That that Infantino said this week that women have in in an event apparently in Hungary that women have been playing soccer football for 50 years, which means he's like eight times more accurate than if it would have been like the president of the Brazilian Federation or something like that. (laughs) So I like, that's not even the worst. And why is it important? I mean, lots of people hate history. Lots of people are really bad at history. As an historian, I accept that because I'm bad at a lot of things that other people are good at. But it matters because history is used to justify denying women resources. History is used to neglect women's teams by saying, oh, you haven't been playing that long. You know, just be patient. Just be patient. Just be patient. You know, um, for no reason. So when you're really bad at history and you're using it, it's especially aggravating to me. So (laughs) Chilean women, at the very least, I just know in, in South America have been playing 120 years 50 years ago, when Infantino starts um, his origin story, uh, is when they had the women, the, a, a women's world championship in Estadio Azteca in 1971, and in Italy in 1970. So there was there was a hundred thousand people to see the women's final in 1971 in Mexico. That's a fact that he should know because he has a book in the place that he works where I have visited that is. Um, dedicated to that. In fact, it's on a shelf that is featured that shows that the Women's World Championship was there. And in fact, I happen to know in Zurich where he happens to work, there are many, 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 many books written by people like me, like Gene Williams, by many, many historians that he is surrounded by that tell him when women's football started. And you have to be some kind of massive sexist or just, oh, like idiot to ignore those books that are surrounding you all the time. So I would just like to burn his, yeah, that, all that. I want to burn all that. (laughs) Burn. Burn. After all that burning, it's time to celebrate some remarkable women in sports this week with our Badass Woman of the Week segment. First up, our honorable mentions. Congratulations to the Guardian's football writer Susie Rack for being awarded the best color piece for her article on the abuse suffered by the players of Afghanistan women's national team. Susie dedicated the award to the five survivors who spoke with her. We're so excited for Jennifer King, who is set to join the Washington NFL team as an offensive assistant, which will make her the first black female full-time assistant coach in the NFL. Kaylee Maya Luan of Haskell Indian Nations University was selected as the 2019 Tribal College National Player of the Year for Volleyball. Jillian Dempsey, the captain of the Boston Pride, became the first player in the history of the National Women's Hockey League to reach 100 points. Sabrina Inascu lives here in the past one of the week segment. Uh, (laughs) Sabrina Inascu of the University of Oregon Ducks got her 24th college career triple-double, This is now the most in D1 basketball history for men or women. Last week, we mentioned Sophia Kennan's singles championship at the Australian Open, but we also want to shout out to Maya Babos and Kristina Mladinovic, who won their third Grand Slam championship as a duo in Australia. In the girls' division in Australia, Victoria Jimenez Kassantseva won the singles title and so became the first player from Andorra to win a Grand Slam title of any kind. Alexandra Ayala from the Philippines and Prisca Madeline Negroho of Indonesia won the Girls Doubles Championship. 
Cheers to Paige Buchers, the number one high school basketball player in the country and a UConn commit for being the new cover star on Slam Magazine. Congratulations to former guest Tracy Leost, the formidable indigenous runner and activist who was inducted into the Order of Gabriel Dumont Bronze Medal, one of the Métis Nation's highest civilian honors. And cheers to Yasmin Haroun, sports activist for BAME, Black, Asian, and Minority Ethnic Women, who was named the Spirit of Britain by the British Muslim Awards. Now, can I get a drum roll, please? (laughs) (laughs) We're getting so much better. Years of practice has really paid off. <laughs> How many fucking episodes can you get a drum roll? I love it. It's wonderful. Our badass woman of the week is flamethrower Candace Lee, who has been named the interim vice chancellor for athletics and university affairs and interim athletic director at Vanderbilt University. She is Vanderbilt's first female athletic director and the first African-American woman to head an SEC athletics program. We all know Candace because she was part of the team that brought us to Nashville last year for one of our live shows. We are so happy for you, Candace. Good luck. All right. What's good, y'all? Shireen, what's good with you? I wish everybody could see this script list that we have of what's good. I have like a paragraph of what's good. Um, Anyways, let's get started, friends. Serge Ibaka and scarves. Let's be honest. We all know (laughs) Tim Duncan is the man for me, but Serge is seducing me with scarves. Like, it's a real thing. And around Toronto, everyone's got big blanket scarves, also because it's freezing, but also love that energy. Um, I did a hot docs for schools. Hot docs is a really cool documentary festival, and I did it with schools, and I was did a Q&A with a life without basketball, Belkis Abdul Kadir's film, and it was wonderful. And the students were amazing, and that was really great. I did see as part of the Hot Docs Fest Festival, so they have showings, a beautiful film called Beyond Moving about CP November, a South African ballet dancer with the National Ballet of Canada, and it was an absolutely gorgeous, gorgeous film. I'm going to go see Caroline and Change, a musical that is. Um, being shown as part of a really like a, a dedication in the arts community to Black History Month. And I'm very, very excited. I'm going with my friend Mel. Um, I did want to say this, that there's a lot of teachers action um, with the unions in Ontario and full solidarity with those teachers. A lot of kids are off these days. And I'm thinking about the families who are affected by this, but also predominantly teachers who don't want to be walking in the picket lines and want to be in the classrooms with the kids. And I'm just thinking about that and also going to throw out a lot of solidarity and support to the wet Suetan activists who are protesting pipeline construction and they're disrupting transit and train lines on their own land to protest the takeover, the continuous takeover of those lands. So if you're in a train and you're being disrupted because of these rightful protests, just relax. You're a settler, so calm the fuck down. Anyway, just solidarity with them. Lovely. So my what's good is that Aaron is once again doing his School of Rock performance today, and I just really enjoy watching Aaron play the guitar. And then Aaron and I are actually taking a trip in March, and we are going to Toronto. (laughs) So we're very excited. Uh, Aaron has a deep love of Pearl Jam, a deep love. And I don't know, what was it, like a month ago, he came home and he said, Jessica, 
have you heard the big news? And he's never on social media and never knows news that I don't know. And I was like, what could this be? What happened? How, like, what, what is going on? And I was like, I, I did not hear the news. And he said, Pearl Jam is going on tour. Um, <laughs> so he's part of the fan club. Um, they're, and so he gets these amazing seats every time we go. They're not coming to Texas. So we had to go somewhere. So we're actually going to go to the opener in Toronto in March. And I'll get to see Shereen and hopefully meet her kids. Yeah. Like yeah, number one on my list. Blocked out the whole week. Awesome. <laughs> um, and then I just wanted to mention something that made me incredibly happy this week. I read or I listened to this adorable young adult romance. It's by Sandaya Menon. It's called There's Something About Sweetie. The protagonists are both second generation Indian American high school students and the heroine, her name is Sweetie, as the title suggests, and she's a fat brown high school track star. And I just loved her so much. It's like, it's just a deeply, deeply sweet novel called There's Something About Sweetie. If you're a fan of like, to all the boys I've loved before, then this book is for you. It gives you the same kind of like happy feelings inside. I checked it out from my local library, so everyone should go do that right now. Okay, Lindsay, what's good with you? Yeah, I've had a pretty down few weeks, so I'm trying to focus on the positive here, which is that my complete room makeover, which I started when I started work after Think Progress shut down, I started working from home last fall. I realized my room was very ugly, (laughs) not decorated at all. And also it like I didn't have like my desk was like 30 inches wide, like it was just a horrible all around setup. So I started to just like spend money and you know, try to find deals and redo and it's I I did my my last few things today, which was getting or this week, which was getting like a computer monitor and a keyboard. Mm. And that'll change your um, life. I I just re and I got some like framed little prints for right by my bed. So, you know, all my wall space is properly decorated. And I just feel so much better. I love it. And it really is helping my mood. So that has been great. I'm going to see two women's basketball games this week because Maryland is home, the Maryland women. So I'm going to go right now and see them play Rutgers. And then later this week, they've got another game. So I'm excited about that. And yeah, February is going to be better than January is is what's Mm -hmm. happening. Do you, Lindsay, I have a question about your room. Do you feel that it helps with your productivity and stuff? Yeah, for sure. So basically, so what happens is I, so I share an apartment with my roommate, but like my room is is fairly big and I have a TV in my room. So I just spend most of my time like not in the living room, but like in my room. So my room is like my bedroom, it's my sitting area and it's my office. So it's everything, right? Is basically in this one room. So yeah, I mean, especially like the monitor and keyboard has helped me be more productive already. Like it really has. And I've got like, so right in front of my desk, I've got like framed photos of a lot of the stuff I've covered over the years. Um, And, you know, some women's activism, female athlete activism. And that has been really it's inspiring because as I'm writing the book and everything to like sit down and look up at Marsha Howard sitting down during the national anthem and look at, you know, TRF and Pratt's Black Lives Matter t-shirt for part of the media blackout with the WNBA um, to look at some of the Nassar survivors and things like that. Um, and these are all photos I've taken during my reporting. And so I think like having that helps me, you know, stay focused on my work too, because it's, it's a visual reminder. Oh, I like that so much. Brenda, what's good with you? I have something that's counterintuitive. Okay. <laughs> we'll tell you a lot about me. Um, 
So what's good in my world is that I got to rag on Bobby Knight this week. So I I wrote an article in which I described Bobby Knight's behavior at the 1979 Pan American Games where he racially abused a Puerto Rican police officer. He assaulted him and he insulted the Brazilian women's basketball team by calling them prostitutes and also racially abused them and whatever. And Coach K bailed him out if anybody wants to know. So I did, he went to jail. I did a brief tweet on it. It got retweeted by Bomani Jones, which meant that like there's tons of people telling me that I'm awful. And um, I just totally don't care. Like, I love it when it comes to Bobby Knight. Like, screw you all. <laughs> he is the worst. And I just love it. Somebody like tweeted at me. Normally, I don't. Normally, this is terrible and it's trolling and it's traumatizing. But when it comes to Bobby Knight, I have no conflicting feelings. I wrote an academic article. You can all kiss my ass. He is the worst. And so, amen. So, so, so somebody, somebody tweeted at me and said, like, oh, what woman? Are you perfect every day of the year? And I just like <laughs> responded. I was like, I am every day, <laughs> every damn day. Like, and it was so fun. Anyway, it's never fun. It's awful. And it's terrible to, to women and people of color. But this go around with Bobby Knight, bring it. So that's my what's good. <laughs> I love that Brenda just changed her what's good into a stealth burn. So yeah. uh, that, was, that was great. Love it. She's such a radical. I love it. <laughs> That's it for this week's episode. Thank you all for joining us. You can find Burn It All Down on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you want to subscribe to Burn It All Down, you can do so on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, and TuneIn. For information about the show and links and transcripts for each episode, check out our website, burnitalldownpod.com. You can also email us from the site to give us feedback. We love hearing from you all. If you enjoyed this week's show, do me a favor and share it with two people in your life whom you think would be interested in Burn It All Down. Also, please rate the show at whichever place you listen to it. The ratings really do help us reach new listeners who need this feminist sports podcast but don't yet know it exists. If you're interested in Burn It All Down merchandise, check out our Teespring store. One more thank you to our patrons. We literally couldn't do this without you. You can sign up to be a monthly sustaining donor to Burn It All Down at patreon.com slash burn it all down. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash burn it all down. All right, that's it for Burn It All Down this week. Until next week. Burn on, not out. Um.